Whoa, it's Christmas time again. Hanging with my friends, trying to soak it in, and it's an easy kind of feeling. Just hang around. And I gathered up my promises, and it's time to set them down. Whoa, it's Christmas time again, just trying to make amends, still trying to fit in. It's a crazy kind of season, just to let it all hang out. And I gathered up my worries, and it's time to set them down. So lay down your sorrows, put on your Sunday gown. Oh, and it's Christmas time again, and I can feel it all around. Whoa, it's Christmas time again. Got my family in the den, getting liquored up again. It's a lazy kind of feeling, just to have them all around. And I wrap them all up in my arms and lay my love down. So lay down your weary head, put on your Sunday gown. Oh no, it's Christmas time again, and I can feel it all around. Whoa, it's Christmas time again, hanging with my friends. Trying to soak it in, it's an easy kind of feeling just to hang around. And I gathered up my promises, and it's time to set them down. Set them down. So lay down your emptiness, put on your Sunday gown. Oh, and it's Christmas time again. And I can feel it all around And it's Christmas time again And I can feel it all around And it's Christmas time again And I can feel it all around Wow, now that is the way to open a show Welcome, welcome, folks. Final show of the year, Behind the Lens. Last show of 2022, and as always, I like to give it a Christmas feel, and no better way to give it a Christmas feel than with my very special guest today, Frank Meyer. That was the song stylings of the fabulous, multi-hyphenate writer, director, producer, singer, songwriter, author, Frank Meyer himself is here. Welcome, 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 my Why, friend. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's always fun to start off with a song. That's my comfort zone. So I just feel like at this point, like, we, you know, whatever, man. Just let it all hang out. <laughs> you know? It's Christmas spirit, man. <laughs> and yes, folks, this is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens with the mover and below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, and the music makers, uh, with producers, writers, directors, actors, cinematographers, production designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, choreographers, authors, you name it, and we talk to them. 
And boy, I've been waiting for this show. All of our regular listeners, you know I have been. I've been talking about Frank coming in to the studio for weeks now. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I can feel the heat. It's a lot of expectations. I better be good. Yeah. It better be hilarious. Ah, you're okay. You're <laughs> okay. See, as long as you're talking, then they don't have to listen to me prattle. Right. Okay. Well, and you know that I can talk a lot, so that's never really a problem. Well, you we know. know I can too, yeah, but. There you go. So, you guys are in good hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a real treat, especially since this is. This is the last show of 2022. Christmas show. It is the closeout of year eight for Behind the Lens. Wow. When we come back in January, it kicks off year nine. Wow. That's a that's a long time to be uh, to be behind the lens. Long time driving <laughs> to Whittier to the studio every yeah, week. Yeah, it's a lot of that's a <laughs> lot of hours in Whittier. Most people that don't uh, grow up in Whittier, you know, try generally to spend no time in Whittier. And yet here we are. And here we are. <laughs> yes. Of course, you took the more expeditious well, route sure, driving. Yeah. I'm known for my expeditiousness. Y- you are? <laughs> well, no, not really. But I, this is, you just heard a little sample of what Frank does. But this guy, he's a producer, director. He's done TV spots for companies like Subway, Little Caesars. You know, he's got a food thing going here. Mm. Dyson, so you can clean up after all yeah, the crumbs. for sure. Sonic, BMW. Uh, you know, you are a producer for Fender Musical Instruments. Yep. And that was not a Fender that you played. No, no, this one, uh, this is a Fender. Yeah, it is a Fender. is a Fender. Most of, I shouldn't say all of my guitars, but a lot of my guitars are Fenders. And that has nothing to do with having worked there for so long, um, but just because it's a great guitar company. In fact, I would say the reason why I worked there was because they make such a good product and I was already kind of a Fender guy. Although uh-huh. I love Gibsons too. They make a great guitar as well. But and then you've got multiple albums that are out. You are an, a prolific composer, composing for TV like American Pickers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. video game theater. Yeah. Attack of the Show. Yeah. Okay. Even I saw Attack of the Show. Yeah, the launch of uh, Olivia Munn. That was where she started. Uh, I've written a lot of the theme music and a lot of like bumper music going in and out yep. of Attack of the Show, sort of throughout the whole time. Um, not the current iteration because their G4 TV came back a few years ago um, and there's, I think, a relaunched version, so I don't have anything to do with that. But the original classic one well, that's just uh, it. I was heavily involved in. Yeah, and then I wrote a bunch of books too. I mean, I basically, yeah. my, my whole thing has been kind of, I guess, just being an artist in the sense that I, I get inspired to do these generally creative endeavors and I, uh, and I just do them instead of sort of waiting for permission or asking for you know, or go or, or 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 going for funding. Meaning, there's all sorts of ways that can prevent you from from doing art, and a lot of them have to do with the business side, and a lot of them have to do with people's um, ability to be hardworking and have follow through. And so, for me, the hardworking and the follow through part was never a problem. But you know, I've had different times in my careers where it's been like, well, how do I get you know, how do I get these projects together? How do I you know, how do I break into publishing? How do I break, how do I be a filmmaker? Like, I, you know, I didn't know how to do any of these things before I did them. But as I would kind of become, you know, experienced in one field, there would just be sort of logical paths to the next one. So, you know, I was always a musician, but um, being part of a, 
musician as being a writer. So the way I made my living a lot when I was a poor, starving musician and touring and stuff was as a freelance writer. So that kind of, they were very hand in hand. Eventually the writing led to writing books. Again, kind of a logical step. Mm -hmm. When I was a writer, I got, after my sort of hardcore touring days, I got a job as a writer at a TV network for the website, NBC. Uh, but that spun into becoming a producer writer over at G4 TV. And while becoming a writer-producer, I sort of learned things like being a field producer, being a segment producer, and that very quickly led to directing because being a field producer is basically directing, but you're out mm -hmm. on the field at a red carpet event or Comic-Con or something instead of directing you know, a, a more thought-out right. piece or whatnot or with actors. Or, uh, so it was sort of a logical step, but because all of my production... And, and really writing all came from a nonfiction point of view. When I got into filmmaking, I went into documentaries because it, again, just seemed like sort of a logical step. I was already yeah. writing nonfiction, telling music stories, working in music, uh, composing, somehow going and just making a, a documentary about a music subject seemed like actually a pretty logical step. So that's sort of how it all kind of... Mm -hmm. So sometimes people will be like, how do you do this now? Nah, nah, nah. No, there's, it's really, I just do one thing. It's just that it's become this it much becomes. larger thing. And also, I'm, I'm, I'm 51 years old. I've been doing this for a long time now. I started when I was like 12. You know, I started making little dopey movies and in my first teen combo band when I was 12. So Aww. it's a long, you know, 40 years now, basically, of doing Aww. these things. So I'm pretty good because I've been doing it for a long time. Not because I started off like some genius, but I just have worked really, really hard at a lot of things, you know. Well, you know, it's funny. I just had a, a sit down with my dear, dear friend, Dion Taylor, mm -hmm. um, the writer, director. He did The Intruder. He's got Fear coming up. He mm -hmm. did Supremacy. Uh, and Dion and his wife, Roxanne uh, Avnet, uh, Roxanne is his producer, but she's so much more than that. She has other clients as well. But Dion, he was a former professional basketball player and wanted to make movies. And that's how, it's very similar to how they got started. It's like, didn't know how to do it. Yeah, you just go do it. And you just, figure it out as you go along. You go do it. And if you screw up, you then you... you Learn something so you, you don't learn, the next time. That's just it. Yeah, you and gotta not. You gotta have no fear, and you got to not be afraid to fail. That's the big thing if you're gonna take an, a a journey in the world of really anything, but certainly with art because you're putting yourself out there, mm -hmm. you know, in front of people in some circumstances. If you're doing like live performance type things, um, and a lot of people's art, not everyone, but it's often based on your life and your pain and your right. journey, and so to go out there. In whatever manner you know your your um, art is appropriate for, but to go out there and put yourself out there is you know easy for some people and totally terrifying yeah. for other people. Uh, so there's a big hill to overcome. But when you get over that hill, I feel like then once you lose that fear, then it just becomes like who's the hardest working one in the room? You got ten guys and they all get an idea. One of them's gonna sit there and you know talk forever and never make a move you know two others are gonna start to do it and then self-edit and never get out of that spinning zone sure. of always trying to make it better and better and better and better and better and like part of my whole thing is i learned a long time ago like man you got to know what you want to do go in do it finish it and move on to the next thing you can't spend 10 years on a record or pro i mean documentary films that's the one place i'd say 
it can take a really long time. Yeah. But and books too. But even books, I just put myself on a deadline and go, this is how much time you're spending on it based on the time you have, based on what they're paying you, and that's the time I'm giving mm-hmm. to it. And I'm not going to spend another year worrying about if it's perfect because I can guarantee you, if they hired me to do it, it's not perfect. It, it, you know what I mean? <laughs> like you wouldn't hire me if you want, you know, like like you know, Walt Whitman. You know what I'm saying? But. I bring what I bring to the table, and uh, and I feel like a lot of it is just being a hardworking person and seeing exactly, like, this is what it's going to take to get to the end goal, and here's how long it's going to take, and I'll see you all in the morning. Let's start. And you know what I mean? And then you just do it. And then while everyone else is talking about it or poking holes through it, you're doing it. And maybe it takes a few before you figure it all out, you know what I mean, like how to do it well mm-hmm. <laughs> you know or or inexpensively or expensively or whatever your you know your your limitations are or lack of them but th- but I begin it's just doing it and it's then becoming how we wake up early and do it we stay late and do it we work your nights we mm-hmm. work your weekends how much luxuries do you have that you'll uh, put aside to finish that project right and the an- correct answer is all of them all the time because that's the only way to do it everyone and the people around you that love you have to know that that's the kind of person doesn't mean i wake up on christmas morning and go record instead of you know do stuff with my kids um but it means that pretty much every other day i'll be doing that (laughs) you know what i mean and so but they know that you know what i mean like i mean my my wife they all know who i am like that you're a workaholic but you also have to make sure you put down your work Mm -hmm. and enjoy your life too you can't be doing it all the time and part of uh being you know part of it is is ha- is being able to walk away like you have to be able to walk yeah. away to get perspective on stuff you do shit all the time i don't know if i can curse but um <laughs> it uh you know that can become a problem too if you have too much freedom like you know or too much you're in it too much you got to be able to kind of mm. walk away put things down ask other people's opinions you know can't be your own little internal thing all the time and then you're like mm-hmm. Axl Rose and you spent 10 years making a terrible album because no one told you it was a terrible album. <laughs> or they were afraid to tell you it was yeah, a terrible album. Yeah, because I mean, you listen to Chinese Democracy now, the Guns N' Roses record that took like two decades to make, it's unlistenably awful. And you know why? Because he had all the money, no deadline, no one around him saying, dude, this does not sound like Guns N' Roses, this doesn't even sound like the like Nine Inch Nails or whatever you're going for, this is just bad, like start over. But Who's going to tell the mad scientist that? You know what I mean? The rich mad scientist where everyone's on a retainer. Well, it's very similar to this one director who thinks that, and no outside influences. He stars in it. He directs it. He wrote it. Everything is him. And it's one, and you may have seen it. Um, the review, it's on Rotten Tomatoes. It's on my website. I put it all over social media mm-hmm. earlier this year that it really is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. And this guy, he relayed to the publicist. I'm not going to say which director this is, mm-hmm. but anybody that reads my reviews Don't is going to know. Don't know. And he got totally bent out of shape. How dare I criticize well, this I mean, film? And that's the other thing, too, is that I, 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 it always bothers me when, when uh, artists, uh, filmmakers, musicians, whatever, get upset with, with critics or bad reviews, because like, what? Then don't put yourself out there. Like, you can't. 
once you put it out there, anyone's allowed to think whatever they want and say it wherever they yeah. want. That's called, you know, not just freedom, but it's just like, you know what I mean? It's not just like, well, that's America. It's like you're making something and you're giving it to people. You don't control yeah. the narrative whether they like it or not or whether they respect you. You know, they can think you're great or absolute garbage and feel free. And if you don't want that opinion, don't put your stuff out there. Because mm -hmm. you're just, you know, I always go into the impression that, Everyone but me is going to think everything I do sucks. And so everything that's a, a bad review just plays into the narrative I've already put. That's I, it. I, I, know, I know I suck. I'm the I, first one to tell that, you that. That's it. And then when you get good reviews, you're like, well, I, what a delight. You know yeah. what I mean? But like, you can't go walking around thinking the world owes you good reviews yeah. or that you've even done great work. Like, I, yeah. Of course I think I've done great work, but who, I'm not impartial. But <laughs> it, it just blows. And the thing is, you know me well enough to know that I don't just say I don't like it. I will give you. Oh, you probably eviscerated this poor man. <laughs> I give chat. I give chapter and verse sure. as to what the issues are. Yeah, as he read it, he probably felt like he was a voodoo doll with pin cushions going into him. And another thing with this problem, ah, oh, <laughs> and the directing, oh. No, come on, you know I. And this is something you know, Dan, don't you? Uh, Dan Port. I don't know. At Maybe. the bar. Probably. Yes, I, he sure. works at Sony. Yes. Oh, Dan Poor. Sure. No, Dan Poor. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know no, me. I'm very aloof. I, I I'm an aloof you. guy. I'm a musician. I, I don't know. I know you know Dan, but Dan, it's like he says. That's one thing I love. He goes, when you interview somebody, when you, when I read your stuff, he goes, you specifically talk about how the camera movement, you know, did not fit the tonal thrust of the film or things like that. I mean, I get, I get very persnickety. Right. And I, because there are some films that I've given good reviews to on the technical prowess of the film, but I just don't personally like it. That's, right. That's not saying, and I always like to delineate. It's not that it's a bad film. Pam knows we have had many guests on the show where I can like a film, but structurally they've got issues, and I'm trying to, to well, and there, and walk there's certainly them through. A lot of, a lot of, uh, certainly in the big, more commercial kind of big budget world where there's great looking movies that just are not particularly well structured or well written or 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 even particularly fun. Uh, but they look fantastic because they've spent all this money on CGI and effects or yep. recreating some, you know, some heroes that, that we love or whatever it is. But then, like, there's not a lot of meat to the film mm -hmm. besides all that kind of set dressing. Um, which is why, like, when the really good Marvel movies or the really good Star Wars movies, you know, the Lord of whatever, when the really good ones slip through and they manage to have all the visionary stuff and all the big budget stuff and so that it's that, you know, that appealing experience when you're watching, but is also a great script and structurally, you know, takes you on the mm -hmm. hero's journey and is doing all, whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's comedy, drama, horror, whatever, but whatever it's trying to do, it's doing it well. Like, that's when it all comes together. And, yeah. You know, those are the popcorn movies where you're just like, boy, am I having fun? You just forget yeah. you're in a movie theater for two hours and just kind of lose yourself in Spider-Man or Doctor mm -hmm. Strange or whatever, you know? Well, and it's funny, because when you mention, you know, a film that looks really good, because as you know, I'm sure, already in its opening weekend, there's a divisiveness about, about Avatar, Avatar The Way of Water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll be saying, or I, I will say I've been reading good reviews. In fact, I've been reading phenomenal reviews. Like, every review I've read, 
is not just that it's great, but that it's better and that it's, you know, again, this visionary just sort of mind. In fact, a guy in England, I believe, had a heart attack this morning watching the movie. He was so overwhelmed by it. Swear really? to God, I read that right before I came in here, which, by the way, you can't buy that kind of press. That's that's no. like, I mean, that's like the whoever threw up in, during Terrifier 2 literally took that mo- the, their to a new take. Level. They went from maybe making $30,000 in a weekend to doing like $8 million because someone barfed in the movie and oh you just that's the greatest thank you barf man yeah it's like it's a that's how you have a hit movie i mean my god you can't you so i'm sure this poor gentleman in england is suffering <laughs> and and i'm sure you know cursing james cameron's name but uh that being said we've discussed this before i have zero interest in this movie and it goes back to what we were just saying a minute ago uh, to me, the first Avatar, I haven't seen the new one, so I'm not going to disparage it, but the first one to me would be the ultimate example of style over substance. It had so much to look at, but it was a really dopey plot, and the characters were, in my opinion, just very, very kind of, um, not not necessarily unlikable, just underdeveloped, just like very, or very stereotypical. He's the hero, she's the princess. The it's the whole thing felt very much like like a a bad Disney movie because I don't mind a good romance story. Right. Disney does a great job often, and so does Pixar of telling these very sort of simple stories, simple love stories, or simple yeah. like you know hero's journey stories amongst a wild set. You know, it's 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 all vegetables or it's this or it's, you know, it's an old man yeah. in a balloon. They give you, you know, very simple things that kind of make it unique. So you don't need a lot. But like with his stuff, I just feel like lately, because I'm a big, big James Cameron fan up until Avatar. Mm-hmm. And that to me, you know, even Titanic has a heart to it. You know a what lo- I mean? Yeah. It's got a lot of heart. It's a little long. And, you know, you can poke some holes in it. But it's like a, it's a great old school you know, classic movie cut from the, the cloth of old Hollywood. Whereas to me now, these movies, it's like, you've got to see them in 3D, and you've got to see it on the special screen, and you know, don't really pay attention to the plot. When I hear don't pay attention to the plot... That, run, run. What? <laughs> That's all I pay attention to. Run in the opposite direction. The characters are really basic. Don't pay attention to the plot. But boy, is that something to look at. I'm like, yeah, you know what else is? My comfortable living room. <laughs> And my wallet when it has twenty more dollars in it than me giving it to James Cameron and 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 AMC you know theater chain or whatever. But again, Piranha Two is a great movie. Well, yeah, actually, yes, Piranha Two is even it's his first. Piran- That's James Cameron's first movie, folks. In case you don't know that, I like Piranha Two. He brought the flying killer fish aspect, like meaning Piranha just had killer fish. It was only yeah. just a Jaws ripoff, but. When you add flying right. killer fish, that's the James Cameron special. That's and, like, and of course, that's the precursor to Sharknado. Sharknado, yes. Which you know, uh, which he did not do, but no, that but, spawned an entire what Sharknado six, I think. Yeah, there was the, the last one. The sharks were in space at one point, yes. which was fantastic. Uh, I watched uh, in the vein of Sharknado a movie the other night because. You know, it's Christmas time, and you've got to watch yes. all the, the specials. So we watched a movie um, called Christmas Twister. It was on Tubi, and it stars a way past his prime 13 years ago, Casper Van Diem, and no one else I've ever heard of. Oh, my God. And it's about a giant, uh, you know, Christmas tornado. But here's the twist. 
unintentionally, of course. Yes. First off, the the effects are so bad that whenever they just look, whenever like there's that shot where they're looking at what's supposed to be a terrifying twister, and and then you know their reactions are just like, oh my god. When they show us the reverse of the shot and we see their back, it's just a white screen, just a white blizzard. And you're like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's cold and a little intimidating, but like, that's not terrifying. I've, I've seen a wall of snow before. It's not that crazy. So the, they just couldn't even, the, they don't even really show you the twister in any meaningful way. And when they do, it's obviously super underwhelming. Um, but the other funny thing is by the end of this movie, and I'm going to, I'm going to, Drop a theory on you guys. Okay, I don't know if you guys are into conspiracy theories. But, oh, you know, like you know how the the Kubrick moon landing, all that. I'm gonna mm-hmm. drop a a, conspir- a Christmas conspiracy Ooh, theory. Oh, all right, I'm ready. Ready. I think that Christmas Twister was originally not a Christmas movie. I think it was shot in Texas in the summer and was called Texas Twister. This is just my theory, because. Other than, because I realized this afterwards, other than a few carefully placed moments, which clearly could have been all one day of reshoots, everyone in the movie clearly is in Texas, all in shorts, all in t-shirts. It's even, (laughs) by the way, which makes sense, summer in Texas. Texas. But have you guys been to Texas in December? Freezing Freezing cold. I don't care what kind of cowboy you are, like how tough you are, there's no one's wearing Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian (laughs) shirt. In the winter in Texas, and like the last shots after they, not kidding, kill the Twister, is uh, is them like triumphantly standing in the wrecked mall, like in Bermuda shorts. And I turned to my wife and I said, I don't think this was originally a Christmas. I think they did. They had they had Casper come in and do one line with a Christmas tree ornament, you know, like in his car, and they shot one pickup scene where there's a tree in the background, and that's it. And then I think they did a few lines dubbed where he's like. You know, like, if he's looking at camera, and he, he'll be like, um, my God, this is one hell of a... And then he'll turn and go, Christmas Twister, over there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they just sort of dubbed in, like, you know, it, it's clearly winter time here in Texas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I swear, there's nothing... Chris, so, oops, luckily, that's a fender, so don't worry about it. They're indestructible. No, they really are. I'm Unlike not joking. A Christmas Twister. But so uh, watch the movie again and tell me. I'm convinced that the entire Christmas element was done in a day of reshoots. That's a gene. I mean, what a day. That's highly possible. My God. Wow. Okay, Pam. Do not open this door. Yeah, there's a guitar. Right, just I, put, yeah. moved his guitar yeah. over there so it's he okay. doesn't touch it and knock it over. Yeah. I got all excited about Qu- Christmas Twister. I, I mean, tell. it's a lot going on. Um, have you watched, you know... Um, Christmas Twister 2? No. The Killing Tree? No. <clears throat> you haven't what? watched that one yet? No, no, no. What is that? Ah, I gave you the link to watch oh, it. Uh, well, there's a lot of movies out there. And I also, realize. by the way, I also got, I kind of got sidetracked. I haven't watched a movie in two weeks because I started White Lotus. Okay. And I had not watched, right. but I started from season one because everyone was talking about the finale. And I love the cast, but I was like, I haven't watched it yet. And I was like, I got to go back to the beginning. So I started yet. at the top, and that's all I've been watching. And now I'm two episodes away from the end of season two. So then I'll get back into Christmas movies. Okay. Like, give me tonight to finish White Lotus. No problem. No problem. So good, by the way. It's such a great it's, show. It's excellent. Yeah. Another one that you, it's on Amazon Prime. It's a new show on Amazon Prime, stars Alfred Molina. Okay. It is Three Pines. 
Three Pines, like Twin Peaks, but three. Three Pines in set in Canada. Okay. And oh, I don't like Canadians. Is that a problem? Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, it's uh, you know murder mysteries. There's a. a I do enjoy murder. Okay. Well, we've got murders that happen, but I love the structure of this because the first it's like instead of one hour of murder she wrote or one hour of Columbo and you rush to get through the story, mm-hmm. it's two hours. It's two episodes. Mm, okay. And you know, and they're play them back to back. And so there's been one and then two more. And then another one. So it really, it's very well paced. Alfred Molina is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Um, And there's one cast member, Sarah Booth, who I spoke with her the other day for a long time. This is the biggest role. She's had TV one-offs and things like that. And she's very big in Canadian theater. But here she is. She's a co-star, one of the co-stars with Alfred Molina. T- uh, Tantu Cardinal is in the f- is in the show also, hmm. and I've been watching her since you know dances with film uh, with uh, wolves right, and just wonderful. But it's very methodical, very well paced. The one running through line through all the episodes is the disappearance of indigenous women, hmm. and that's something that Taylor Sheridan has addressed. On Yellowstone. Right, right. In season three. Um, so I like how this is transferring. And other shows are now picking this up and shining a light on the plight of the indigenous people. Be right. it the, in French Canada, Canada or here. And that new uh, Predator movie also was kind of... Uh, did, you, did you see that one? I it did was, not. It's set like a hundred years ago. And it's a Native American tribe going about their, you know, daily business mm-hmm. uh, in that they're hunting and gathering and stuff. And Predator shows up because, you know, in the Predator movies, they always kind of hint that he's like he's he, they've been doing. The, and also the Predators have been coming down to Earth for, you know, centuries or whatnot. As we learned in Predator 2, right. thanks to Danny Glover. Exactly. And this one, uh, I really liked it a lot, actually, because the setting, obviously, it's not... A, the setting that you've seen a Predator movie in before, and it's not tied to the others, so they're not trying to, like, do any clunky stuff with, you know, trying to plot-wise or characters coming back or any of that stuff. But mainly because of the setting, the the protagonist is essentially a young girl whose family gets, you know, sort of, you know, take affected by the by the arrival of the predator i don't want to give anything away but as we know when when predators show up not a lot of people what's the word i'm looking for live um and so she who has hunting and gathering skills because you know that's what you do back then uh uh is prepared to take it on especially now that she's got revenge on her mind uh so really really good movie and i thought uh a really cool way to sort of take you know the Predator franchise and give it a new spin because sometimes I feel like those movies where they just you know like uh, you know Jason in New York you're like no yeah no uh, no but somehow the idea of like Predator a hundred years ago in kind of like a you know dances with wolves kind of setting I mean Mm -hmm. that's being super general I mean you know out in the plains and horses and spears and bow and arrows as opposed to machine guns and rocket mm-hmm. launchers and all the stuff that, you know, the more modern Predator movies always have that right. sort of like everything's high arsenal. This was cool because there's no 
bullets. There's no arsenal. It's like it's she's got to take it on with spears and and uh, bow and arrows. And her mind, imagine that. Wow. Yeah, and you know the the dopey guys in those Predator movies, not always the uh, smartest thinkers. So that's one uh, thing the Predator always had yeah, on them. Yeah, you know we noticed that with Jake Busey yeah. or Gary Busey wasn't sure. Jake wasn't, uh, yeah. but it's Gary Busey and. Who else was in the second? I mean, Danny Glover had some smarts, but it took a while. I mean, Bill, Bill Paxton's Paxton. a lovable guy, but I don't know if he was the brain trust of that operation. Mm, you know, no. I, I, we learned that from Aliens. You don't. Bill Paxton's going to panic. One thing, if he's on your squad, he's going to be he's hilarious gonna, he, and he's he going to panic. panic. Yeah. So there you go. But R- rest in peace, Bill Paxton. I mean, and nicest guy in the world. I'm sure that guy's. He made nicest some great movies. Chet. He's Chet. He's Chad from Weird Science for crying out loud. I interviewed him for Million Dollar Arm. Uh, and I because you had to do it, they paired him with Alan Arkin. Mm. <laughs> Great actor. Uh the interview. Wild. <laughs> Wild. Wild. There's a great movie. Um, I think you can find it on Tubi or Amazon with with uh, Bill Paxson and Bud Court called Brain Dead, uh-huh. and it's one of those movies that when I saw the cover, I was like, yeah, I remember seeing this, you know, the VHS cover of this back in the day. Never saw it. It The cover looks like Bud Court with his face stretched out, kind of <laughs> like Catherine Hellman in, in 1984. But so finally one day, just like think at the beginning of the pandemic when you're like, uh, movie number seven today because I've got nothing else in the world and the apocalypse is near. Say, I'll try this. And it is a wild movie, super low budget, but you ever see those movies that have these just grand ideas and they don't quite have the budget to pull it off, but it's just trying its little low budget heart out to deliver these just multi-level, multi-reality, sort of time-traveling, insane movie folded on a movie, and it's the most bat-ass crazy movie you've seen and it's absolutely harnessed by its lack of budget but like because it's got guys like Paxton they kind of work their way out of that box and like I I swear to God I watched this with a friend of mine when it was over I was like that is one of the most amazing movies I've ever seen like it was completely unique not great but entertaining and totally unique and original so Brain Dead Bill Paxton incredible work yeah and you know a really obscure film that really, it shook up the indie world a number of years ago. Primer. Primer's great. Oh, they, that's sort of a time. Right around the, time the same time. Uh, Do you ever see Time Crimes? It's a yes. uh, Spanish time. That movie's really cool. Almost no special effects, right? So, sort of like Primer. Like, meaning most t- time travel movies, there's always like, we've got to get back to the glowing wormhole. Everyone run! You know? <laughs> like, now they, these are more like intellectual kind of yes, time travel and movies. You, you have know? to pay attention. Or Loop, what was not Looper? Looper's a good one. What was the one with um, Jake Gyllenhaal on the train? That was another one that was a cool. Uh, and then there's Colin Trevorrow. Um, his breakout film was Safety Not Guaranteed. With I've Dupl- never seen that one actually. Oh my! It is incredible with Mark Duplass, Aubrey okay. Plaza. It's wonderful. I like Aubrey Plaza. You know, have you seen her new one? White Lotus. I'm all over it. No, 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 uh, no. she's got a new film out too. Emily, uh, the, Emily criminal. the Criminal. No, but but I will With because Theo Rossi. Uh, it's she's hilarious. So good, and it's and she picked up a Spirit Award nomination. She, uh, I'm sure you've seen like those old clips of her when she would do interviews when she first got famous on Parks and Rec, and she would go and do like the most awkward 
talk show appearances, but like purposely awkward, meaning she's yes. just a delightful weirdo, but like the world didn't know it yet. Yep. You know what I mean? She kind of goes and just sort of says what's on her mind, and which makes for incredibly awkward you know, yeah. TV moments, but again, in the best kind of way. Yes. Like she'll just s- call out the talk show host for asking such silly, vapid questions, at, or just sort of go like, yeah, you know, you're, you're like really funny stuff. You got to watch no. that stuff. I mean, I've been in, in Aubrey Plaza's camp for it's years great. since yeah. she first started out. Yeah. She's just incredible. Yep. But, you know, talking about films, I got to ask you about your films that you've directed. Okay. You've got the one that you've already done, the documentary Risen, the story of Kron Hellraza Smith. Yeah, it's a, it's a little hard to pronounce. It's Shron Hellraza Smith. Hellraza is like his play on you know the Hellraiser character, yeah, well. but you know with rap spelling because you got to misspell. See, yeah, and you know I'm not I'm it, not into rap. And in you know. and in and in hip hop and in glam rock, uh, w- both of which I've had my feet in, you got to misspell. All S's have to be a Z. You know, if you're in a glam rock band, it's not broken toys with an S; it's toys with a Z. You know. Uh, and and this, if you're in a Wu Tang band, it's the same thing. You gotta like you know, kill a priest to spell. And this with is why A-H. the youth of today do, don't know how to spell. Well, yeah, yeah, that it certainly has played into it. <laughs> but, but yeah, the the first one was a documentary, uh, Risen, which is uh, available on all your digital platforms these days, Amazon and Tubi and all that jazz. Um, that is a documentary about a rapper named Hellraiser who was part of the Wu Tang Clan. Family. He was in a group called Sons of Man, and you know, uh, appeared with all those guys on all those records: Ghostface Killer and RZA and Method Man and all those guys. And um, I had met him real early on in my career when I was a publicist in my early days when I was um, a musician. I was writing. I was also doing publicity, and I worked at this record label and worked on the Sons of Man record. Became friends with Hellraiser, stayed friends with them, and then later on when I was at NBC, I was doing some hip hop you know, coverage there for right. the network. And uh, I filmed him a, f- a few interviews with him, and then he had a brain aneurysm. And he lost the whole left side of his body, including mm. the ability to talk and walk and obviously rap. Uh, I went and visited him just to kind of visit him because I was out on the East Coast with work and was like, hey, I'll, I'll swing by. I rented a car and drove out there. And he was way worse off than than he had sort of let on in interviews or told me on the phone and and I was, and he was just really bummed out. Like he was just in a bad place when I yeah. when I saw him, and I just kind of felt really bad for him. But I also like I was such a huge fan of his music, and I just could see that, like you know, in a way he'd been robbed of it. But I also was pretty convinced that um, at least his the mental part of it was sort of in his head. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Meaning there was a lot of it. That he felt like the things had been taken from him, and. And, and the mm. system and the health insurance yeah. were just screwing him and that he was poised for all the success, which he felt sort of entitled to, and that all of it was kind of gone. And, you know, he was like an angry guy at that time. Um, but he also still had all the same kind of spirit I could tell in him. And he still was writing like hard bodied, you know, just wow. devastating rhymes, just to, couldn't deliver them anymore. So I kind of just thought like, well, maybe if I give him the opportunity to tell his story, you know, A, it could be a, a cool story for other people to hear because a lot of people have had brain aneurysms right. or a handicap and that it might be an inspiring story. But I also thought it would be really cathartic for him to to go through the process of telling me all this stuff and reliving things and um, 
that that might be sort of helpful to his recovery. So we originally was supposed to just kind of be a few interviews, you know, like I was going to make like a short film or something. Mm -hmm. But very quickly I realized that it was a really compelling story. So over about a five-year period, just whenever I could get out to New York, maybe four times a year, um, I would go out there and film whatever part of his life he was going through, his recovery stuff, his relationship, met his family, interviewed mm -hmm. them, other members of Wu-Tang Clan, other members of, you know, other artists he'd work with. And um, essentially over about a, I mean, it ended up being an eight-year period before it actually hit the screens. But like, um, it was about a five, six-year period of filming and then a couple years of editing mm -hmm. and putting it together and getting it sold and all that stuff. So anyway, so that movie is really, it's, it, the hip hop thing is kind of the geography that it is, you know what I mean? That's like where it's happening, but it's really more of a story about like recovery and rehabilitation, mm -hmm. redemption and kind of human like condition, human condition. It's a, and watching him try his best to get back those See, things. I you know? love films like that. It's got a Rocky vibe to it. It's you like know? a hip hop Rocky. I love way. films like that that really dive into, you know, delve into the person. Right. And go on the journey with them. Yeah, we only, I feel like if you didn't, I mean, th at the beginning of the film, for about 15 minutes, we kind of properly set up who this guy mm -hmm. is. And that's really about it. Like, after that, it's all his personal story. And the only kind of tie-ins is that there's often musicians popping in because he was a musician. So some of his best friends and closest people and are musicians, but other than right. that, I, I don't like like if you didn't know anything about Wu Tang Clan or weren't a fan of hip hop, I don't. I feel like pretty quickly you'd, you'd realize that's it's not necessary. But if he was a plumber, I would give you ten minutes about how he got into plumbing. You know what I mean? If he was an electrician, <laughs> meaning what we're yeah. really just telling you is here's this guy's life when it all got taken away. Mm -hmm. So you have a sense as to what he's trying to rebuild. Sure. So there's context to it, and it's especially. Um, when you see early on him when he's like rapping, like the guy was like a, a wordsmith. He wasn't just a rapper. He was writing these really complex rhymes with a lot of political references, relig religious references, street references, really pretty like heady stuff. And, and, and with this like verbal dexterity. And then when you see him struggling to put a sentence together later on, it's like, again, like you don't have to be a fan of the music he made, but when you see what he used to do with language and what he can mm -hmm. not do with language anymore, it's heartbreaking. And that's when you go like, whoa, like uh, it doesn't, I don't have to like the music. What I see is a guy who had this talent that no longer has it. And boy, is he yeah. struggling to deal with that. You know, so that's really what the movie is. The other film, which is coming out in a few months, is um, called Freestyle 101 Hip Hop History. And it's about the history of freestyle rap. And it was kind of made around the same time, um, in in a way, it was made around the same time as the Hellraiser film, in that when I was interviewing Hellraiser right before the aneurysm, I was doing a lot of hip-hop stuff around the time mm -hmm. that I was at NBC. And I had interviewed so many big-time rappers about the same subject matter. Like, tell me about rapping. Tell me about freestyling versus lyricism. Like, tell me... You know, I would talk to them the way you would talk to a guitar player. Like, you know, are you doing a trill there? Or, like, what are you using? Your fretting hand? Are you tapping? Like, there's technical jargon guitar players sure. who talk that people don't know. And I would talk to these guys, kind of like, tell me about the breath control. How are you spitting that much? And, like, where are you taking your breaths? And just all these kind of stuff that, as a... As a like, I'm a multi-instrumentalist, but I can't rap. And so when I was watching these guys do it, I was just like, what the? Like, how? 
This guy, <laughs> this guy just smoked three blunts, looks high as hell, and is doing things that I couldn't do with 16 years practice. Like wow. this guy is just on another planet with his language and his brain skills. And, and, and boy, you didn't expect it because the guy came in, you know, blunt in his hand, backpack on, you know, like meaning a, an unassuming dude. And then when you go, hey man, do your thing, you see this like butterfly come out, just like wow. this unbelievable talent, you know what yeah. I mean? From this kid, like from these kids, like I just couldn't believe these, you know, I mean, not always young guys. Some guys, we interviewed a lot of older rappers, a lot of younger rappers. There's no real type. And we're insane clown posses in the movie. Like, we've got Detroit guys. We've got, you know, M.O.P., Mob Deep. Chuck D is the narrator. Ice T's in it. Um, Fat Joe, Hieroglyphics. I mean, tons of Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, tons of heavy, heavy rappers from all walks of life, all colors, all parts of the world. But what they share is this incredible... Um, ability to master language and the movie freestyle 101 is using freestyling which is improvisational rap as kind of just a conversation starter for mm. like what is it to be a rapper how do you get there and um and then we as we set up what it is we follow some younger guys who kind of come from this whole school of battling and freestyle rapping and improv and like okay now you're you can do these things does that help you get a record deal? Like, can you write a hit with that? Like, will radio play a freestyle? Nope. Mm -hmm. You know, not unless you have your own radio. It's just like, what do you do? It's like, again, going back to the guitar playing thing, because that's where I came up. Like, in the 80s, everyone was all about that flashy, you know, whammy bars and mm -hmm. tapping like Eddie Van Halen. Every guitar player sounded like Eddie Van Halen. It's totally irrelevant now. Or they thought they did. Well, they thought, but they never wanted to. <laughs> but, like, that whole... Uh, style like okay that was cool in 1988 but here in 2022 what do you do with being the greatest you know tapping heavy metal guitar player like unless you started a band that's already selling records it's a useless skill if you can't write a song you better go get a gig at a restaurant you know what mm -hmm. i mean because like you can't make money just doing this one thing that no one does in music anymore unless you're doing this one tiny little thing to a tiny audience so being a rapper who can be a dazzling improviser Improv improvisational rapper if you can't harness that into something that people want to buy and monetize it besides just like pay me 50 bucks to go body this this your mm -hmm. homeboy over there and you know he'll try to ra out rap me and i'll bury him <laughs> give me my money but like okay but like maybe you know most battle rappers will tell you that they, they you can't even sustain that you know what I mean? Because it's like being a boxer. Like, you could be the dopest battle rapper for about two, three years before some other younger kid's just going to come and take you out. And then what do you have? Nothing. No hits, no music, no songs, no fan base, because all they wanted to hear was you be the guy that bodied rappers. But now you got bodied, so you're done. You're done. You know? And it's like, same thing with, you know, being any kind of artist. Like, you got to learn to be, like, a you know, you have to learn to make money, for mm -hmm. one thing. But also, you can't just have this one one thing that you're really, really good at. You have to figure out how to make an actual living doing this in a career, and usually a career is beyond just like, you know, one style of 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 a, you know, one style of a style. Mm -hmm. Like freestyling is so incredible when you see it, but it, you have to have you, be a songwriter in music, mm -hmm. or you won't make any money besides getting paid for live shows. Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting with these two films that you've directed, Risen, that you know, it's you've got a through line, a natural through line there, following his recovery, where he came from, where he is now, and follow him along the line. 
Freestyle 101, sounds like you had to develop and find a through line based on all the interviews and whatnot you were doing. So that sounds like it became more of a film in the editing process. For sure. When you found that connective tissue. Yeah, because also, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of uh, great music documentaries that don't necessarily have like sort of a a a plot going on as well as just telling you the story of an artist. Right. But I didn't want this to be a talking head movie, meaning, Mm -hmm. I mean, I interviewed over 120 rappers for this, all very top guys in their field, some underground guys, but a lot of really, really big names. And, you know, the first cut I did of the film was that. It was 120 people telling you this story, and I realized, like, you know, I mean, unless you're a real, real hardcore rap fan, of which I am, but who's going to want to see this? You know what I mean? You've got to, because just having people sort of talk about, you know, slight variations of the same subject matter is very inside baseball. And so if you can't figure out a way to take what you find special and interesting about that and make it a little bit broader of a story or somehow figure out a way to bring in some other element so that someone that's not a super fan of that could also enjoy your story. You know, if they don't have to necessarily be a huge hip-hop fan. It doesn't hurt. But mm. if you figure out a way to, you know, my whole thing was like, okay, you know, what is what does it get you to be the dopest freestyler? Mm. And I that that line of thinking made me go, well, maybe I need to, rather than have this movie just be, an hour and a half of talking heads telling you about different aspects of this one history of this art form and then the different, you know, sort of, you know, multi-heads of this art form. Mm-hmm. But now, but you need to somehow have a human story to that. And so you got to follow around someone that somehow represents this art and this struggle and then see, like, well, what's their life like w- with this tool in their tool belt? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, going back to classic stories, it's like, you know... Excalibur magical sword, but you put it in the hands of a human, and that's your story. Is like, what does a, a man do with this magical weapon? Well, what does a kid do with having this magical ability of being a wordsmith? And uh, you find that there's a lot of guys who can just, you know, they're doing dazzling things with it, but it's not a lot of guys that are getting a real successful career in the music industry or in show business based on those skills. And that kind of became interesting to me because I thought, well, that's something other people can relate to. It's like, hey, I spent, you know, I'm a great this, but that's not where I make my money. That's my side hustle. And, you know, most people, when they tell you about their side hustle, that's what they want to do with their life. Everyone's side hustle is just the thing that they would rather be getting paid more for. My side hustle, quite frankly, is music because I get paid more to write books and direct than I do to play music. But, I mean, if if I had $10 million right now, God, I mean, you know what's crazy? In this day and age, that's not even that much. It's not that Let's much. Let's say I had $100 million right now oh, and they said, okay. you, don't, you don't have to work ever again. That wouldn't change my music career at, at all. all. Not one aspect of it because I do every part of that and I make money doing it but I do it because that is that's that's my real passion like I love directing I absolutely love directing but the way that you generally make directing or the way that you make a living directing in show business is to find a day job doing it you know most folks are not Jim Cameron most movies don't pay enough to pay your bills for the two or three years you know a lot of directors I know and I'm just going to throw some very loose general numbers out here, but tell me if I'm way off base here. 
you're doing your first, second movie, assuming, you know, you're not somehow like Sofia Coppola, you know, coming with like celebrity, you know, cachet. Generally, you're getting paid 100 grand to do a movie, but you have a manager. So that's 10 to 15% right there. So now it's 85 grand, we'll call it. You've got and a publicist. There's, and there's publicists. So let's call that another seven. Let's go down to seven. Five. But first, wait, that was taxed. So actually, it was 60 from the get go. And now we're down to 45. Now you got a wife and a kid. And the movie isn't going to take you two months. It's going to take you two years. So you're working for somewhere around $45,000, which, as we know, is not anywhere near what you and need taking, to raise a family. And taking two years, that breaks down and to... And working 17-hour days yeah, the whole time. Breaks and breaks down to 22500 a year, which is below poverty level. Right. So, essentially, to be a filmmaker in the sense of making films, uh, you have to figure out a better plan than that. Mm -hmm. And that's why, generally, every single filmmaker, much like every single musician has either their day job version of being a filmmaker or the side hustle. Mm -hmm. in, you know, And so meaning for me, yeah, I make these documentary films, but every documentary filmmaker will tell you documentaries don't pay. You can't mm -hmm. pay your rent on a documentary yeah. film, even if you get an advance. Again, by the time it's all you know said and done, it's yeah. like you pay a couple bills, there's your yeah. advance. I've written eight books. I get advances on every... I don't write a book without an advance, but it's the same thing. By the time you do the math, like it's you've paid it's... some bills and it's gone. So you end up having to go, well, I'm a director or a producer or a writer or whatever, so what TV network will hire me and put me on staff where I can get a 401k and, you know, pay get my health insurance, days. pay vacations. <laughs> and, then, and then you figure out a way to, you know, like, okay, I'm, I got this job in show business directing on staff somewhere or whatever. Like I was at the, uh, the fitness company Tonal for the last year directing um, super high-tech AI-driven fitness videos. It wasn't where I saw my, you know, meaning that's not, it's not like I had a great, I, by the way, I'm not disparaging. It was a killer job. Right. I'm still doing it. I'm just, you know, doing shoot by shoot. But like, um, it wasn't like I had a burning desire to go into the fitness tech space of directing. It's more like the opportunity arose and I went, well, that, I haven't done that before. And boy, AI, AI driven content sounds cool. And there's another little tool in my belt so the mm -hmm. next time they go have you shot in 3d i go yep have you shot in uh, 360 yep have you shot ai yep and then you you know better gigs you're gonna get down the line um so i just kind of feel like you figure out i love to do this and then you figure out the closest way you can do what you do in show business and get paid well for it and then how you can then find the time to continue doing what you really love which for me just becomes like you said like my vacations tend to be going on tour you know my weekends or my little days off i go and play concerts i That's go to it. europe i go do the things and you've and been doing quite a few concerts lately i play a lot of shows and i do a lot of touring but i work it out around whatever like right now i'm freelance so i can i can play more when sure. when i was on staff uh and th this varies year to year because that's just the way my career is but you know if i'm on staff somewhere then i usually have to kind of my touring calms down and i basically use my vacation days to go do anything like out of the country mm -hmm. or real long touring and then it kind of becomes long weekends you know i mean other yeah. than that it's just weekends because that because i can't burn the candle at both ends and get paid well to be a director because you have to be like on point you have to actually yeah. be well rested and not drunk 
Imagine. Um, and then, <laughs> whereas music, you can be totally drunk. I mean, come on. It actually it helps. It prefers you, you know, looser. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, so you, you, you do that. But then if you're freelance, you know, then like then you have a little bit more control to some extent over your hours. And you can be like, hey, I'm going to block, you know, I'm going to go out of town and go to Spain this week. So I'm just not going to take a gig. And then I'll come back and I'll double down and take a bunch of gigs for a few weeks. And then I'll do mm-hmm. this. And I can kind of be a little bit more in, in control of my schedule. But I don't know whether one's better or worse at this point. I just kind of, you know, it's all it's all just you know hat tricks. I've got a question for you that I've only asked a few a few filmmakers writers over the years. I'm really curious for you. Um, you touched on it briefly with freestyle and with risen about you know attracting more of an audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, dis- figuring out when you write songs, when you write script or edit films, are you figuring out from the start who you want as a target audience? Because, and we had this on the show, and I think Pam, I, I, I think it was after the days of Brian, and you were already engineering, and a filmmaker, young filmmaker, and if I said who his mother is, you would know automatically. So I'm not gonna mm-hmm. I'm not gonna say her name. But I and the film is is just you can tell he partnered up with a friend of his, and you know his dad gave me I want to make movies. His dad gave him seventy five thousand dollars to make a movie. Wow, I want that dad. Um, makes this movie. My, my dad said good luck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My dad said, you want to go to college? Figure out how to pay for it. You want to do this? Figure out how to pay for it. Um, But what he did, I said, well, and the movie is just like all over. It's all over the map. And I said, well, who is your target audience? Who did you, you know, who were you aiming for? Oh, well, everybody. Well, that's the problem. Well, that's. So I'm curious with your music. With your films, when you are writing, when you are creating, do you have a specific target audience in mind in your development process? Uh, y- yes and no. I think I, I think I generally start with the idea before I'm worried about who the idea will appeal to. Um, okay. So generally, whether it's a song idea or a or an you know an album, because sometimes the way. With music, like I'm, I'm always writing songs, but also sometimes I'll kind of get a bug up my ass to do like a, a, a project. Like I want to do a metal band, or I want to do a, a blues thing, or something. I'll kind of get a genre in mind almost, mm-hmm. and that, to answer your question, kind of leads to what the audience is. So you know, when left to my own devices, you know, my, the band that I've been with the longest that's probably got the most you know, name that's not me paired up with someone more famous than me is this band, the Streetwalking Cheetahs. And the Streetwalking Cheetahs have a sound and an identity. And that kind of came out of just, you know, playing the clubs and figuring out what our sound and identity was. But when I make a certain, you know, if I'm if I'm sort of left to my own devices with no agenda, I tend to write kind of like raucous rock and roll. And that basically kind of fits into the Streetwalking Cheetahs sort of vibe. You know, mm-hmm. a little, little bit of hard rock, a little bit of punk rock, a little bit of metal, you know, kind of just up-tempo rock and roll. So 
that's kind of like my comfort zone. You know what I mean? So I know what that audience is because I've been playing in the Cheetahs since the 90s. And, okay. you know, we've toured with bands and been on multiple record you labels. Yeah. A new album? There's a new album called a new album. All the Covers and More on Rumbar Records. We'll even hold it up so yeah. people look on, on Facebook. That's, that's, that's it. It's but a double, man. It's a double album. It's a collection wow. of all the cover tunes we recorded over the course of our 25-plus year career. It's and great cover tunes. And there's people too. like Cherie Curry from The Runaways are on it with us and people from The Dead Boys and the MC5 wow. and The Stooges. And then, so, like, that would be something, you know, if I'm doing The Cheetahs or if I'm just kind of, you know, sitting around writing rock and roll songs, it's kind of going to be sort of in that vein. And obviously when mm-hmm. you see a record like that, you can kind of tell where my influences are. Cheap Trick, Ramones. Yeah, you know, I see Blah, that. blah, blah. Yeah. But, for instance, when I made this other record, uh, MF and Rock and Roll with Eddie Spaghetti, uh, Eddie Spaghetti is the front man of a band called The Super Suckers, and they're a bigger, more established band, and they have kind of are known for sort of being an outlaw country rock and roll band. So when he and I got together to Thus make a record... explains the cover art. Yeah, it kind of got more of a yeah. Western vibe to it. It's a rock and roll record. It's not too far off from what you might hear from you know my material away from eddie but because of his background and just because of you know when we made a record together you're going to hear a little bit more country on that and therefore in my head i'm like well the audience for that's a little bit of my audience a little bit of eddie's audience but maybe if we're lucky we can get some airplay on one of these outlaw country you know serious radio kind of things and find a little niche in there so again the music started but it kind of feels like, well, it's fairly obvious where we'd go with that. Another one is like, I have this band, Highway 61. It was my 90s blues rock band, kind of like a Stones, Tom Petty, Black Crows thing. And we did a reunion recently and made a record and got signed to a label, actually Rumbar, the same people that put out this Cheetahs record. Wow. And that's a totally different sound than either one of these bands. It's more classic rock. It's more blues-based, kind of Stevie Ray Vaughan, the kind of stuff you'd hear like on, you know, Classic oh, rock radio. I would listen yeah. to. Oh, me too. That's what I grew up on. <laughs> That's what I learned to play guitar to. So, and I've always had that style in me. You know, like I said, this band was together in you know, 1991, two and three. So that's what we were doing back then. That's where I came from. Um, but over the years where I found my success was in this more hard edged take on mm-hmm. rock and roll. But, you know, found my way back to that sound. And I know that we're going to promote that. Maybe, obviously, I'm hoping that people that enjoy my other work will stumble their way to the Highway 61 record, but the idea is that it's a different band with a different identity, and we'll go out there and find our own audience, and there might be some crossover, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is not necessarily for the same people that like the Cheetahs music, because the Cheetahs right. is fast and hard-driving and lots of curse words, and Highway 61 stuff's much more like a Tom Petty kind of vibe or Black Crows, and then... I have this band that's based out of Copenhagen called Trading Aces, and that's like a sleaze metal band. Sounds like Motley Crue or L.A. Guns or something. And the entire purpose of that band was that I also love that kind of music. And it's difficult as a U.S. artist to get a whole band over to Europe to tour on a regular basis because you have to advance everyone's plane tickets and then you're dealing with getting a van and backline of gear and a driver and you've got to have label support out there. And there's all these things that make it difficult to get five guys like the Street Walk and Cheetahs out to Europe on a regular basis. We've done it. It's just Mm -hmm. something that costs a lot of money and it becomes difficult to sustain. 
Whereas it occurred to me during the pandemic, because I was getting a little bit more creative with my career, Uh Uh what if I assembled a band where everyone was already based in Europe, and the van and the back line and all that stuff was there, got signed to a European-based label, or at least one that had like a stronghold in Europe, and because hard rock and metal, which I love, you know, is very popular in Europe more so than it is here, it struck me that that was a way that I could get over to Europe on a more regular basis, so I formed a band called Trading Aces with members of this band Warrior Soul and we got signed to a label called Ripple records out uh, this May going to Europe this summer to go tour with that band so you know I kind of just you just have to be strategic about it and and again if I'm gonna go make a European you know sleaze rock record like I know exactly what that audience is there's festivals all over Europe where all these metal bands from Mm -hmm. the states who do clubs and theaters go over there and are playing download festival in these huge places and since all the guys in my european based band are established i was like well might take a few years but i see us playing big festivals in a few years yeah so i started on this last year writing and recording now we got signed record touring starts this year a couple years from now we'll be at download festival that's it boom plan in action wow (laughs) now where can people purchase the al- your albums that you have out now. Yeah, well, I mean, the main thing to anyone, the, the, to the casual person, just go to wherever, you know, Amazon Music and all the places you buy, Apple Music, iTunes. I mean, my stuff is all and out in, yeah. Frank, Frank Meyer, Meyer or the Streetwalking Cheetahs or Spaghetti and Frank. And or, it is M-E-Y-E-R. Yes, it but. It is not Mayer like Louis B. No, no. No. Uh, and it's not Myers. Everyone throws the S at the no, end. No, there's no S. No. Um, but also, you can go, I have a Bandcamp page where I have a lot of, um, like, our you know physical copies of records and, and CDs and stuff up there and a bunch of songs that are not available on records. And then um, you could find me on Instagram at the Frank Meyer or on Facebook at Frank M Meyer because apparently there's a lot of Germans named Frank Meyer. So I had to throw my middle my middle that. initial in there to separate me from those damn Germans. I can understand that. <laughs> and where? Can well, I, I've already thrown the Canadians under the bus today. The <laughs> Germans. Germans. Is there anyone else we could uh, <laughs> I could infuriate? I don't know. Give me time. But and then. For Risen, because that's been out, your documentary Risen. Yeah, that's pretty much, at this point, Risen is pretty much in every digital platform except Netflix and Hulu, because those ones are a little tougher to get into these days. But, you know, Freebie and Tubi and uh, Apple Movies and Google Plus and YouTube Movies and Amazon Prime and essentially everywhere but but Netflix and Hulu, you can see Risen, the story of Shron Hellraiser Smith. And then the new movie, we're trying something interesting with Freestyle 101. There's a company called Seer, and the website is seer.la, S-E-E-R.la, and they are a digital pay-per-view platform. Okay. And so the idea, and again, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, so I'm always looking for new ways and new avenues or maybe to maybe possibly be ahead of the curb once in a while instead of incredibly behind it. But, um, you know, streaming, when, you, when you're in the business of streaming music and movies, uh, it's very difficult to make a lot of money once it hits streaming, meaning you can work with companies that are giving you, covering your budgets or giving you advances. There's ways to make money and stuff. But by mm-hmm. the time it hits streaming, unless you're, you know, Lord of the Rings and you've got a gigantic marketing campaign, you yeah. know, you kind of, it's like you're taking your pebble and throwing it into the lake and going, well, let's see. If anyone sees that shiny pebble, yeah. it's like, no, no one's going to Is the ripple it. hitting the shore? Right, just <laughs> waiting for that tidal wave. They say that the, no? So 
you know, it's difficult to it's just it's just difficult to sustain a business doing it with that that revenue stream and that model. Um, it's also the only way to do it these days, unless yeah. you try other stuff. So we met these folks from Sear, and what they do is essentially it's a it's a pay per view platform. And like we started off this conversation talking about like who's your audience, mm-hmm. and, you know, and and do you go for everyone? Nope. With this, we made a movie about hip hop for hip hop fans with lots of people that hip hop fans are going to go. Oh my god, you got these people in this movie? Like that's a lot of heavyweights. If you are a hip hop fan and I rattle off who's in this movie, your jaw would drop. It's it's a gnarly, deep, deep like oh these guys got. Everybody like we have mm-hmm. Grandmaster Kaz from Cold Crush Brothers and R.A. the Rugged Man. I mean, guys, who, you know, Freestyle Fellowship. Guys who, if you know your hip hop, it's like, whoa, you got you got hieroglyphics, you got Dell in there. You know, really serious rappers, rappers. Your rappers' favorite rappers. So, guess what we're gonna do? We're gonna go after rappers for this movie. We're gonna go after the people that love this music mm-hmm. and that love the hundred plus rappers in this. We're gonna go after their social media. And essentially do a super targeted release wow. instead of just throwing it out there to everyone mm-hmm. and saying, well, we hope that people who like this kind of music find it, knowing that without a giant marketing campaign, they're not going to. Right. They're just not. Unless they happen to be my Facebook friend, which, you know, I have a lot, but not that many. Not enough to go sell a movie. Uh, so at that point, we decided, like, you know, we met these folks from Sear, and they had this idea of doing a very, very targeted Release mm-hmm. where you're really going after the exact people that you think the, are the audience for this movie on a much more limited but targeted streamlined campaign. So instead of trying to appeal to everyone, we're going to appeal to boom bap hip hop fans of the that's that's, you know, of the '90s era who love freestyle rap and know what battling is, and the same people that go and watch battle rap videos or go and watch those old videos of classic rappers, you know, just being dazzling with wordplay because they're so sick of all the lame rappers these days who have no dazzling wordplay. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> there's some exceptions. There's some really great rappers out there right now, but um, but rapping is no longer a prerequisite to being a famous rapper. That's my only point. Mm. Well, my friend, unfortunately, we are out of time today. Damn it. I've got all the time in the world. Uh, we're, we're we're even over. Of course, everybody expects that. I always run over. Always run over time. I always run over um, animals and small children. Is that Will weird? You stop. That's just, it, did it get dark at the end? It just got dark, didn't it? It, it got dark, but that's you. Know you. What? It, an hour and ten, and then it got dark? That was good. That was that good. Was really that was good. good. It could have gotten dark like... 45 it, seconds it, into it. It could have. I could have not done the Christmas song and just done, you know, like my 10-minute song about the movie Trancers and Tim Thomerson and <laughs> Jack Death and just grinded your show to a halt. Now, you that, didn't... Which, by the way, my, that, that's my favorite Christmas movie is Trancers. Oh, well, I brought some of my favorites today, and as you can see, some are ancient. Yeah, well, that just means they're my age. Um, yeah, Barry Manilow, because it's Christmas, now that's a Christmas experience. It is. But, you know, I I had to. I brought my 25th anniversary Die, Die Hard, Hard sure. collection. And, of course, I'm wearing the official. Die Hard is a Christmas Die movie. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Uh, I'm on the campaign that Trancers is a Christmas movie. Okay. The problem is no one really knows what Trancers is. But You know, and for whatever reason, I have two copies of It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know why. And for my money, Trading Places is a Christmas movie. Oh, for sure it is. Absolutely. Christmas in Philadelphia, nothing better. Yeah. But so I, you know, 
I couldn't find my full collection of Christmas stuff. So I told Pam before, I think it's buried behind, behind, in like a third row in a cabinet. I think The Terror Train with Jamie Lee Curtis is technically a Christmas movie as well. I David, think it, young David Copperfield, because it's think, New Year's yeah, Eve. It could be. Same. But yes, but you know, I've had people laugh. They're like, you have VHS? Yes, I have VHS players that work. I recently took a bunch of Betamax tapes to get digitized so that I could finally get rid of the Betamax, Betamax. tapes I've been wow. holding on to. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to get rid of all that antiquated media. The Betamaxes and the cassettes. It's like I, I don't I got no use for that stuff anymore. Yes. But I want some of the media off it. Not the movie like like you know, some of them have like my bands from when I was thirteen or like yeah, personal you stuff, yeah. you know. But it, but some of them you know what I found is my old Remember when you would just watch MTV and just record like oh, the yeah. cool videos? So you had your own mixtape of like, oh yeah, Van Halen, Rat, Motley Crue, yeah, it's my own video montage. It was it was like back in the day we'd record songs off the radio. Yeah, exactly. But then when MTV and Night Flight and USA Network started, I would do I would just sit there all night and taping record. like anything heavy metal or punk rock on TV. <laughs> and and I found one of those compilations and it's pretty dopey. Oh, <laughs> There's a lot God. of Armored Saint videos on there. Well, <laughs> my friend, this has been incredible having you here on Thank the show. Thank you. Merry Christmas I hope and happy holidays. Fun. I hope you had fun. Yeah, it's all right. You know, I mean, it's a. I have a lot that I'm normally doing at 1030 on a Monday that's pretty exciting. But this this, this was so, all. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm no, so sorry. Are you kidding? I mean, listen, Whittier is a fabulous place. So that's... <laughs> Anytime I can come down to what we what we in the show business call Whittier Rock City, I come down to Whittier Rock City and tear it up. Actually, you know what I noticed on my drive down here, by the way? A lot of weed dispensaries on the main drag here. I like this place. <laughs> well, you're going to have to come back on the show again. Sure, 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 sure. You are a hell of a way to finish out the year. Thank you. That was fun. Good. I'm Let's glad. Wait, last thing. What's your favorite movie of the year? Because we're closing out. Oh, my God. One movie. You got to say it. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Wow. Not what I expected. Okay. And I think that is actually, for my money, the best picture of the year. Del Toro, you've done it again. Hey, let's, at, let's put it this way. My attorney, Brandon, went with me because we saw it. Is the closing at the Animationist Film Festival. And even Brandon was just, and he loves movies, but generally he only goes, I bring him like, you know, bartering for legal services. So he goes to Star Wars and MCU movies with me. Came to this for the closing for the festival, which I covered and did a ton of interviews on with these anim incredible global animators. And even Brandon is like, did you hear that sound design? I've never heard anything that perfect. I just. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, I honestly think that Top Gun Maverick is a really, really, really close. Yeah, yeah. Close second. But best picture of the year for my money is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Wow. All right. Good. That, that crazy puppet did it again. Uh, you know, I think it's it's the wooden nose, you know? Yeah. That's that's what it is. Yeah. Your favorite? Uh, I will go, I actually, 
I, I, it's either I think the unbearable uh, weight of massive talent with Nicolas Cage. Okay. I laughed so yep. hard during that movie, and it was so much more fun and creative than I thought it would be. Uh, I'm going with that or Barbarian or Northman, but um, I really I did not expect to love that Nicolas Cage romp as much as I did. Yeah, no, I really like that one and Barbarian, Killer. excellent. And by, and, and excellent. Northman too was was amazing. Anyways. Excellent. Well, that is all the time we have today. While Pam is anxiously waiting to push the button in there to bring up the outro music. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, my friend. A thrill having you here, Frank. Um, People, check out Frank Meyer. Check out his music. Follow him on Instagram, Facebook. He's there. He's funny. He's sarcastic. He's raucous. <laughs> um, a lot like me. Yeah. <laughs> With snark. Yeah. Um, so, until next year, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. All right. <laughs>